The 22nd most popular TED Talk of all time might be based on a complete and utter lie. In today's show, best-selling author Bruce Daisley and I look into the hard evidence behind growth mindset to myth-bust whether it's fact or fiction. But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have grit? According to best-selling author Angela Duckworth, grit is the tendency to sustain interest and effort towards very long-term goals. Some of us have it, some don't. People are born with various levels of grit, according to Duckworth. But the good news is you can build grit if you adopt a certain mindset, a growth mindset, popularised by Carol Dweck. And if you get yourself some resilience training, well, grit and growth mindset will come easily to you. Now, you may or may not have grit, but you've probably heard of it. Angela's TED Talk on the subject is legendary. That's the work that stands before us. We need to take our best ideas, our strongest intuitions, and we need to test them. We need to measure whether we've been successful, and we have to be willing to fail, to be wrong, to start over again with lessons learned. In other words, we need to be gritty about getting our kids grittier. Thank you. That's the end of Angela's famous TED Talk, this 22nd most popular TED Talk of all time. It's quite the feat. It has 27 million viewers on TED.com and 10 million viewers on YouTube. And her work has been shared in hundreds of books, thousands of courses, and in millions of organizations worldwide. But is any of it true? Is there evidence to back it up? Or is it pure business jargon? That's what I asked today's guest, Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a best-selling author with his book, Joy of Work. He has become regarded as a thought leader in subjects like workplace culture and the future of work. And in his latest book, Fortitude, he looks into grit and growth mindset and resilience training and investigates the evidence. Is it brilliant or is it bull? Here's Bruce. Yeah, in the book, I do go into something of like... um an investigation mode, largely because, uh, you know, there's one chapter which sort of tries to get to the bottom of the the challenge that I think someone posed for me. So someone said to me, two people actually said to me within a very short period of time, when I told them, it's always sort of demoral, it's mildly demoralizing when you tell someone you're writing a book on resilience and they roll their eyes and you're like, ah, right. Okay. Um, okay. Can I ask why you rolled your eyes? And the, the first woman said, oh my God, We've all been sent on resilience training at work and, you know, everyone is reluctant to admit it, but it doesn't work and it doesn't have any impact. Okay. Then someone else I know who works in a NHS hospital, she said to me, if you mention resilience around here, you get thumped in the face. And so it's like, it's because largely resilience is kind of the way that toxic 
regimes, toxic environments, attempt to justify themselves. They say, oh, you know, it's strange that you're not, it's strange that you're feeling burnt out um, because not everyone here is burnt out. Maybe you need some resilience training. And it's, it's a brilliant reframe. You know, this idea that we're working three hours a day more than we did 15 years ago and that you're in back-to-back video calls or you're, you're constantly beset with someone pinging you for something and you don't have room to breathe and you, you sort of open your calendar on a Monday morning and you feel this breathless claustrophobia that, oh my gosh, how am I going to get my work done? And you feel overwhelmed. And then someone strides in and says, you're not very resilient, are you? Like the idea that it's on you and there's some history of that. The, probably the sort of the spirit that lives throughout the book is a professor called Alex Haslam, who's just like this wonderful, inspirational um, the, uh, researcher who's a social scientist. And, um, and he said to me, look, you know, the long history of this. He said uh, back in the 2000s, the early 2000s, there was a hospital, the West Dorset NHS Trust. And they, for the first time, they, were, they received a, a warning from the Public Safety, Public Health England, I think saying you've got a toxic environment here you need to make amends you need to make this a less stressful place of work and you know for 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 fear of penalty and their response to that was to say okay we're going to send everyone on resilience training so not deal with the fact that they had this toxic regime but yeah we need to tough, toughen everyone up now there's a lot of parallels in the conversations we're hearing at work right now Bosses saying, what, we've got a burnout epidemic. Oh, well, in my day, that never happened. So we need to toughen everyone up. So it became this sort of investigation, firstly, into this training that is offered to people. And these, effectively, there's something of a resilience orthodoxy that at the heart of all of this training is... Um, I guess a single idea, which is that an individual is responsible for the outcomes of of these situations, because that's what resilience training is. That's resilience training is saying this is on you. And so let me teach you the ways of doing it. And so that's had an enormous span of influence in the US. The lead researcher is the is a guy I like to see as like the Robert De Niro of psychology in the sense that no one can doubt this dude has a formidable body of work. But Martin Seligman, uh, his later work isn't as good as his earlier work, I think, is the, the way I would describe it. And, and yet, so Martin Seligman is pretty much any time you find someone going on a resilience course or, you know, he had a hand in grit. He wrote the original, co-wrote the original paper of grit, Angela Duckworth's work, or, you know, his influence really strides into gr- uh, growth mindset. All of these things, growth mindset is, is adjacent because growth mindset says the reason why you're not improving is nothing to do with poor education or, or you know, the trauma that you experience as an individual or the, the inputs that have led you to here. None of that. It's about whether you believe it's what you bring to it. It's the application you bring to this moment. I'm just going to pause here to briefly explain some of the concepts Bruce is sharing. You might not have heard of them, but you've, you've probably seen them somewhere, whether that's in training or courses or elsewhere. So let's start with growth mindset. A growth mindset refers to an individual's belief about their talent. The opposite of a growth mindset is a fixed mindset. That's a belief that your talents are due to inborn traits. For example, someone might believe that they got a pay rise because they are naturally smart and naturally talented. In contrast, a growth mindset refers to the belief that talents are malleable. 
by whatever means. So for example, someone might believe that they got a pay rise because they worked really hard or because they sought out extra help. Grit is similar but slightly different. Grit refers to someone's ability to persist after setbacks. Grit is related to growth mindset because if one believes that failures are due to their own fixed traits, there's no reason to keep trying. But if you have a growth mindset, you'll get grit because you think, oh, I can keep trying to get better. And resilience training, well, that's what you take to adopt both a growth mindset and to get more grit. All right. Lots of theory there. Hopefully you're still following along and hopefully you're still wondering if any of this stuff is worth its salt because according to Bruce, it's everywhere. Growth mindset is everywhere. It's like a Japanese knotweed. It's, um, it's, you can't escape it. I started one night, I started looking at the websites of schools from you know, local primary schools, local comprehensive schools, local uh, uh, private um, nursery schools, local uh, Eton, you, they've all got growth mindset on the, the the website. You know, it's in the national curriculum of Northern Ireland. Organisations like Google say we re, we hire for growth mindset. It's everywhere, and yet if you look into the research of growth mindset, um, the original research, one one person when the conundrum that was facing a lot of organisations that were, a lot of researchers, which was no one could replicate. Uh, Angela Duckworth's work um, forgive me uh, Carol Dweck's work no one could replicate Carol Dweck's work so um, people were trying to work out why on earth are her results so remarkable because the, the essence of growth mindset in essence is that it changes three or four words and it has a transformational effect the first growth mindset research teaches a group of kids who are set a series of challenges it it teaches them after they fail in the second part of the challenge it teaches them uh, a lesson which is i believe i'm someone who i can improve my effort will make me get better from the the opposite of that i forget the word so sorry um but uh, effectively the results are transformational and people went back and tried to reproduce it and they couldn't get close and someone said which i think was really sort of sharp observation they said they discovered that there was one thing that all of the replications of growth mindset had in common that all of the failed replications didn't and it was the presence of carol dweck every time carol dweck did the work the results seemed to work every time she wasn't present now her response to that was people aren't following my methodology appropriately and that begs a really important question because if a school's got to a very exactly implement her methodology i don't think that understands the chaos of the classroom i don't think that understands you know the idea that you could do it anyway latterly they have set about trying to do some new adaptations of growth mindset and there does appear to be a very small impact on children who otherwise would have failed school so it's a small impact it's about like um it's about one grade point. Actually, maybe that's a big impact. Uh, it's about one grade point for, for people who are going to fail school. But for the majority of the people, it's a bit of a fairy tale about individualism, individualism, really. If you want to see a correlation with school results, the biggest correlation with school results is household income. So, um, you know, so getting people out of poverty would be way more effective than then uh, then teach them growth mindset. But but broadly what you find through all of these things, so like there's a, a chapter of the book which is like a detective novel style investigation of trying to get to the bottom of why all of these stories about resilience are propagated at people and why so few of them seem to have any result. 
So let's get into the evidence. Does grit exist? Shortly after Duckworth's book first appeared, Marcus Creed, the researcher at Iowa State University, published a rigorous analysis of all of the data used in the book. He didn't do half measures. He looked at 90 studies on grit. As Bruce shares in his book, the conclusion was that when it came to raw numbers, the grit effect either appeared to be massively overstated or insufficient attention was paid to the specifics of how the results were expressed. For example, Duckworth claimed that among cadets at the West Point Military Training Center, those who scored highly for grit were 98% more likely to complete summer training. The problem with that figure, as Creed points out, is that it neglects to take into account the fact that the overall completion rate is 94%. Now, while it's impressive that 98% of the grittiest candidates made it through, and a four-point lift in success is certainly not negligible, it is somewhat misleading to present the results that way. What looks like a guaranteed ticket to military greatness now just looks like a minor jump. And what about resilience training? Well, there are studies on that too. An analysis conducted by six senior military leaders and published in Military Psychology in 2013 looked at resilience training offered for US cadets. They found that when they made resilience training voluntary, no one signed up to attend. Military personnel themselves just did not believe it would help them. In the same report, a study of personnel currently serving in Afghanistan who had undertaken resilience training concluded, despite the training, both resilience thinking and morale were observed to decline across the period of the training. So grit and resilience training both seem like fairly weak principles when put under scrutiny. And in his book, Bruce shares the same is true for growth mindset. Timothy Bates at the University of Edinburgh tried multiple times to reproduce Carol Dweck's growth mindset results with 12-year-olds. They found that growth mindset training had no significant effect on cognitive performance. Children's own mindsets, they went on, showed no relation to IQ, school grades, or changes in school grades across the school year. Their conclusion was that there was little or no support for the idea that growth mindsets are beneficial for children's responses to failure or school attainment. Bates ran another study in China with 212-year-olds and found the same thing. Meanwhile, the 2018 study with a vast sample size of 365,000 participants found that the overall correlation between growth mindset and academic achievement is weak. This is completely counter to Carol Dweck's research. Dweck claimed that 67% of children who were praised for effort would pick more challenging problems, whereas whereas only 8% of those praised for intelligence picked challenging problems. The thing is, no study can replicate this. Despite it being omnipresent in schools and offices and self-help books across the world, the evidence for these principles is slim. So why? Why did all the researchers get it wrong? Why do millions of people across the world follow these principles? Well, it might be because we didn't really know what resilience is. See, popular belief states that resilience is a trait. It's something you either have or you don't. And it's also like a muscle. Some people are naturally more resilient, but others build the muscle through training. That's how we view resilience. You can build more resilience by practicing. But that might not be true. Resilience might not be a trait. Instead, it could be a state. A state that you embody if the circumstances are right. 
For example, you might be more resilient when you've got savings in your bank, or a loving family, or no significant health problems, or perhaps parents that read to you at night. If that's true, then that changes the whole ballgame. Resilience isn't the thing we need to work on, it's everything else. Our standard of living, health, wealth could be key, not our mindset. After this quick break, I asked Bruce what he thought. Is resilience a trait or just a state of mind? Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. Here's Bruce answering if resilience is a trait or just a state of mind. The idea that whether resilience is a trait or a state is a really big... Um, is, is sort of, it might seem like a nuance, but it's a really critical thing because quite often, you know, I think we're led to believe that resilience is this trait. There's some people, when we watch the news, we look at some people who've done these remarkable things and think, oh my goodness, they've got access to this bravery that I feel feeble and embarrassing in, in comparison. You know, it's, it's in, it gives us a really clear pointer, actually, of where resilience lives. And we'll, we'll come on to that in a sec. But, you know, um, I think there's a recognition from people who study it that resilience is a state. And once you recognise that some people aren't gifted with being more resilient, when, once you recognise that, you know, this isn't something that some people have got that others haven't got, it's but it's, um, it's a sort of state of mind. It makes you reflect on it in a slightly different way. You know, there aren't these superhuman people. The, the, there doesn't seem to be something that we can do tests to identify whether uh, this, this, um, tra- uh, there's some background that's got people to, to a place of resilience. I think, you know, demystifying it is really helpful. And researchers at the University of Queensland and at Harvard University seem to agree. As Bruce shares in his book, their work suggests that resilience isn't some kind of natural trait, and it's certainly not regarded as a permanent mental state. Instead, it is a state that anyone can embody if the circumstances are right. Nobody talked about the resilience of the Ukrainian people prior to the war with Russia, But these people showed resilience when the circumstances required it. They didn't need training, they just needed the circumstances to be right. And saying otherwise, claiming that some people aren't showing resilience, is in fact harmful. It's really victim-blaming. To some extent, you know, resilience, the way we talk about resilience, is victim-blaming. Because, you know, broadly what you find is people are normally given the, the invocation to be resilient when something's gone wrong to them. And if they can't exhibit resilience, then we go, okay, well, it's a shame you weren't a bit more resilient. And yet 
that to, to a large extent is saying to people who've by the nature of that exercise have just experienced misfortune saying to them well you know to shame you you're not able to get back on your feet because other people are and maybe those other people didn't have the same misfortune so you know i i look at it when you see resilience in the news you know resilience those uh, the people of flint michigan you know you, you occasionally see this sort of venture into your timeline where the the people of flint michigan had polluted water uh, tap water for best part of a decade and you know they were told they just needed to be a bit more resilient and what you're basically hearing there is someone saying yeah just go away and deal with it yeah stop bothering us stop just why can't you just why just keep moaning about this why can't you deal with it and effectively it's like this lack of empathy it's like transferring the responsibility of dealing with it onto people who are suffering misfortune so you might be listening to this and think well, resilience is a load of old rubbish. It's not important. But that's not true. The debate here is about how you build resilience, and clearly there's a lot of misinformation about that. But those that do find themselves in a state of resilience, they will benefit because resilience, or fortitude as Bruce calls it, can be really powerful. In fact, it can save lives. Here's Bruce with an eye-opening study to explain. This research took a, a series of I think it was women who just received a cancer diagnosis and it then interpreted their explanatory style. So it categorized whether they were stoical about it, whether they were, um, they were combative, you know, like they, they were like, I'm going to fight this. There's no way this is going to beat me. Whether they catastrophized it and, or whether they were defeated about it. I should add here that the research was weighted based on the type of cancer. Obviously, you might feel defeated with a terminal cancer versus a beatable cancer, but that was factored into the research. The women all had comparable forms of cancer, and the only difference, according to the research, was the four categories of how the women viewed their cancer. I think they revisited those people five years on, and the, the tragedy of it is that that explanatory style did appear to have a relationship with the outcomes. So the, the people who, the women who'd catastrophized or been defeated were far less likely to be alive, were far less likely to have had good life outcomes. And the women who'd had this fiery, never stay, die, I'm going to beat this, you know, like this almost sort of performatively... Um, you know, robust response had were far more likely to were to to have survived and to have fought off the cancer. Now, look, it makes me really uncomfortable to say that all of that because it feels like it's saying that it's down to some individual, and to some extent, it's slightly contradictory with what I've been saying before. You know, it's that these things are to some extent in the way that we we respond ourselves. But I think it's an illustration of the the impact that personal control has on us the, the the impact on sort of us believing that we can have an impact on those things one thing you observe um in teenagers now is that they do appear to be more likely to say that the the outcomes of situations are far more likely to be fate uh, that was destined to happen oh uh, you know it was out of my control and to some extent, that represents an absence of a locus of control. And these patients who said, I'm going to fight this and beat it off, is 
a locus of control. You know, we, we believe that we've got some impact on this. And having that locus of control does appear to have some degree of impact on outcome. Control is important. It's one of the factors we need to build a state of resilience. For example, if you're stressed out at work, getting burnt out, but you have control over your actions, say a bunch of savings that mean you can quit comfortably, or you're self-employed so you can reduce the workload without much bother, then you'll show more resilience. Whereas someone without control, say a junior doctor in the NHS with no choice but to work the hours they're given, or risk losing seven years of hard training, that someone without control is far less likely to find a state of resilience. This isn't a theory, there's some hard evidence to back it up. There's another piece of work done by Martin Seligman. So having discounted some of his later work, this is some of his earlier work where he, it was one of his last animal experiments, I think, but he injected cancerous tumours into rats. And this these cancerous tumours were regarded as having a 50% lethality rate. If half of the the rats who would have this cancerous tumour injected into them would die. And then he put them into a manipulated environment, which was a cage that had, I think, 15 electric shocks during the course of the day, every day. But the rats in half of the cases had a little touchpad that they could touch to stop the electric shock. And the rats who had the control, who were able to change their environment, um, were significantly less likely to die than the rats who couldn't the rats who couldn't control their environment who you know were rendered into this state of helplessness you know what what fresh hell is coming along now i think three quarters of those rats died and the rats who were able to control their environment and and appear to have some degree of impact on their experience i think about a, a quarter of them died um, so it's three quarters who couldn't, a quarter who could. And uh, and it just it, it demonstrates to some extent it's sometimes this illusion of control or this this sense that we can control our environment does seem to have a big impact on life outcomes, really. Having an element of control in a situation will increase your resilience during that situation. And it's not just resilience, by the way, it's stress as well. In one experiment, rats were deprived of a sense of control via an injection of Botox that froze their muscles and limited their mobility. A measure of control, however, was returned to some of them in the forms of pieces of wood on which they could chew. The researchers found that the stress levels of those rats, able to exert just some control over their lives through chewing, did not go above the previous baseline level of stress. Among the rats denied that ability of control, the ability to chew. For them, the stress levels rose to seven times their previous level. Chewing, in in this scenario, can help reduce stress because it gave them that feeling of control. It makes you think that chewing gum manufacturers are missing a trick. Some of us need gum because it makes our breath smells nicer, but far more of us need to reduce stress. So perhaps it should be remarketed from Wrigley's Extra Fresh to Wrigley's Quick De-Stress. All right, let's round up one key point from today. Resilience isn't something that you get from some course or something you learn while studying at Eton or Yale. It's something you experience when the conditions are right. One of those conditions is control. So next time you hear someone bemoaning their work or lamenting their partner, ask yourself, what level of control do they have? Rather than telling them to harden up or show a bit of resilience, have a think about how they could go about getting more control. 
After all, that's an actual proven way to build resilience. Okay, folks, that is all for today. If you're looking for something else to listen to, go and check out episode 22 of Nudge. It is a two-year-old episode, but it is with today's guest, Bruce Daisley. And on it, we discuss how to be a good boss. 75% of Americans hate their boss. And on the show, Bruce explains why this is and how to be one of the few bosses that people actually like. I've left a link to that episode in the show notes. In the show notes, you'll also find a link to buy Bruce's book, Fortitude. This book is a treasure trove of insight. When I'm reading books for the show, I I use an app on my phone to take notes. And Bruce's book has the honour of being the book with the most notes. Why? Because there is just so much good stuff in there. If you care about the subjects we've spoken about today, then you'll love that book. So go and pick up a copy. And if you like the show, please consider doing the three other things I always ask you to do, which is subscribe to the show wherever you listen, sign up to my newsletter and give the show a review. Do all three and you will genuinely make my day. So thank you. All right, that is all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and I'll be back in another week for another episode.